Chris, I got a question for you. Yeah, hit me. Let's say you went to the greatest party of all time. Just so good. All there not just not just in terms of like the the bands that performed there, but it also an 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 incredible feeling of social harmony, of togetherness that that together you would you would be able to conquer anything with these uh, with these thousands of other people at this party. Mm-hmm. Would you want to go back to that kind of party again? Uh well, let's see. I saw this movie called Project X once, and uh, <laughs> that was pretty much about. <laughs> no, I mean I off the top. I mean probably. I can't think off the top of my head what is the best party I've been to, but that sounds quite appealing like why not want to relive that assuming it's going to go as well as it did the first you time you fool you idiot <laughs> that's a terrible idea chris and i'm gonna tell you why all right My name is Eric McAdams, and this is a podcast about incompetence. Every episode, I tell a friend of mine a story from history involving massive incompetence. This week, I've got Chris Compendio. Hi, Chris. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me back. No problem. You know Chris from the AP Marvel podcast, where they talk about all the goings-on of the MCU and (laughs) so on and so forth. Also from a bunch of other websites that I can't keep track of. I've also added them too. I I'm just killing myself here. <laughs> yeah, they're they're all over the place. You can find the writing just about uh, any corner of the internet. Well, I mean that's not true, but in a lot of corners of the internet, you can find my address and my uh, phone number. Apparently, uh, after I the heard whole about E3 that. Thing. Yeah, please please, if you're listening to this, don't don't look that up. <laughs> Do not call me. <laughs> you are yeah i will not look kindly on it i do not want to talk to you or anybody else <laughs> that's what i would say personally mm. that sucks i'm so sorry that happened to you it's been fine so far <laughs> no no one's harassing you Ah, uh, not yet no uh my, my colleagues have gone like one or two things but i have been uh scot-free as of now hopefully i didn't jinx that we'll see <laughs> Speaking of incompetence, yeah, you might have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is that is honestly that's that could be a candidate, especially if I don't know if, if there's any chance it could like snowball and turn into something even worse. Then that'd be great for my podcast. <laughs> yes, you get to uh, profit off the uh, the misery of uh, game journalists everywhere. <laughs> that's uh, that's the name of the game, baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the name of the video game. Hmm. So we're gonna we're gonna get started. And Chris, you um, a long time ago, months ago, I asked you what kind of story you'd be interested in hearing, and you specifically said something along the lines of Fire Festival, some kind of big incompetence, incompetently made festival organizational problem. That sounds like something I would have said. I mean, it's it's mainly so like it's mainly the. Uh... Just the layers of logistical <laughs> errors and uh, all of that, like just this this beautiful 
mess, let's call it, you know. Um, so beautiful that they made two documentaries. <laughs> yeah, two separate documentaries with, with yeah. wildly different viewpoints from what I hear. <laughs> so I think I've found a good story for this. I think I think this is definitely hitting the marks that you that you that you requested. And it's going to be all about that notoriously horrible failure Woodstock. Yes. No. No one's ever heard. Yeah. No, yeah. Just I'm kidding. Faded away from history. Yeah. You've probably heard of Woodstock. It was organized by four men named Michael Lang, Artie Kornfeld, John P. Roberts, and Joel Rosenman. Woodstock was a music festival held in August of 1969 in Bethel, New York. It changed the face of both the music industry and the counterculture of the late 60s and early 70s. Blah blah blah. Whatever. People did a good job. That's not what we're here for. <laughs> But here is, I am I am going to tell you some background on the on the show because I think it's important to to give some context as to what comes next. The festival featured the greatest array of rock and roll talent ever assembled in one place. The founders had a lot of trouble getting anybody interested at first and this was exacerbated by financial troubles. They were all new at the music festival game, yet they wanted to host the biggest one ever. Particularly troubling was the fact that Michael Lang clashed with the more financially prudent members of the group because he was more of a dreamer who wasn't great at sticking to schedules. Remember that. Remember what? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Credence Clearwater Revival was the first major band to sign on. And others followed. 32 acts would end up performing over four days, including Joan Baez, The Grateful Dead, The Who, Santana, Sly and the Family Stone, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Crosby Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and many more. Dozens of other bands were asked to join, but declined, and this list included Bob Dylan, who refused despite living in the town of Woodstock. (laughs) Yeah, the, the founders had specifically chosen this area to entice Bob Dylan to play at the festival... But he still didn't do it. <laughs> wow, what a power move. Not only that, he apparently got pretty annoyed with all the hippies showing up at like on his doorstep. <laughs> on his, in his backyard, these mm-hmm. goddamn kids. Yeah. yeah, what followed was approximately 400,000 hippies descending on a small New York town for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So many more people showed up than the venue could handle that they eventually just made any extra tickets free and stopped trying to enforce it. Uh, this may have been a mistake, as the founders were deep in debt by that point. <laughs> <laughs> Even after they, they directed and produced an Oscar-winning documentary about the festival, it took them over a decade to get out of debt. Huh. That sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. I can't imagine how that would be relatable. Not only that, but the residents of the town voted to never allow that kind of festival again. The traffic jam to get to the festival uh, had been so massive that the con- that the county declared a state of emergency based just on the traffic <laughs> on the roads. Uh, danced in the streets. Two people streets. also died at Woodstock. Oh, okay. There was an actual casualty. Yep. Rate. There's a fatality count. One died from an insulin overdose, and one apparently died from getting run over by a tractor because they slept in a field. Hmm. That's very, like, Darwin Awards-ish <laughs> at some it's a point. a bad way to go. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, still, Woodstock took my life. Yeah, <laughs> not in like a cool way. Yeah, showing up to heaven, like, oh, I got run over by a tractor while I was yeah. tripping on acid after a rock and roll festival. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I went. Uh, still, it was a life changing event for attendees who praised the social harmony of thousands of people coming together to share to share the hippie vision of peace and music. <laughs> Good for them. Good for them. Sorry, that didn't play on audio, but I just kind of like shook my head a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that was the most unimpressed I've ever seen anyone be. I said peace and music, and Chris was like, mm, well, I don't know about that. Not sure I can get behind that train. So naturally, after a festival like that, there's got to be a revival, right? Woodstock, the sequel, the, the return, let's call it, the, the next generation. Well... Yeah. The very next year, folks tried to have, like, a Woodstock 2, a revival, but the guy who owned the farm where the first one took place flatly refused. (laughs) He was like, thanks, but no thanks. Apparently, for years after this, locals would, like, spread chicken manure to keep, like, outsiders away from their fields. (laughs) Just because they would keep, like... They would keep showing up, and they just didn't want them around. Hippie repellent, yeah. Yeah. You know how it is. There wouldn't be another real revival until 1979 when a guy named Richard Nader organized a much smaller show in September in Long Island. Only about 20,000 people showed up to that one, so basically nothing, but it featured a lot of the smaller groups that played the original show. There's also a separate Woodstock revival that same year at Madison Square Garden. A similarly small event took place in 1989 at the site of the original event. Organized spontaneously by a little-known folk guitarist named Rich Pell, it was free to all comers and allowed performers of any skill level to go on stage. It sounds nice to me. <laughs> it's like a talent show or something? Yeah, it's like an open mic. Open mic night? <laughs> yeah, an open Woodstock. It sounds like a nice time, and I'm happy that they were happy. Okay, good for them. That's the end of the feel-good portion of the revivals. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this journey through the nights part of this podcast. Are you ready for Woodstock 94? Absolutely not, but keep going anyway. It was billed as two more days of peace and music. It took place in Saugerties, New York. That I may be pronouncing that wrong. And this one had two things the previous revivals didn't. Corporate backing and the original founders returned to organize it. This is where the, uh, okay, I, I see where this is going now. <laughs> Rosenman, Lang, and Roberts all returned to, to organize the festival. The crowd was estimated at 550,000 people, even bigger than the original. And with all those people, it was immediately rowdier than the original. The weather was bad as it mm. rained for virtually the whole time. Steven Tyler of Aerosmith fame was there and said it rained like a cow pissing on a flat rock. He always had a way with words. Yeah, that's why that's why they pay him the big bucks. <laughs> this this gave it the nickname of Mudstock. Catchy. During Mudstock, security clashed with both festival goers and the bands themselves. <laughs> What? What? That doesn't sound normal to you, Chris? I don't know. I, for some reason, everything in the world somehow takes me back to the bread incidents with with uh, Smash Mouth. Where... <laughs> okay. Are you aware of the bread incidents? I don't think so. This is a, this is a mini mini tangent. I thought you were going to say Fire a... Festival. No, tell no, me no, about no. The bread there incident. was there was a bread incident at a food festival where 
Smash Mouth was, um, they were, you know, going through their usual sets, mm-hmm. and they got to All-Star, and for some reason, everyone at this food festival, this was, like, some, like, a few years ago, so, like, fairly recently, All-Star being, like, a 2001 song, so keep that in mind, but they started throwing bread at uh-huh. Smash Mouth, uh-huh. and the lead uh-huh. singer, Steve Harwell, just starts ranting and threatening the, the, you know, the audience, and he's, like, threatening to, like, go into the audience and start beating them up. And security has to stop the lead singer of Smash Mouth <laughs> while the rest of the band is still playing the instrumental of All-Star in the background. That's so funny. That's actually so that's what I think great. of when, like, security and bands clashing. It's really good that you brought that up because a couple really similar incidents happened <laughs> at Mudstock, uh, Woodstock okay, 94. Uh, there was a point where the band Primus was there and played their song, My Name is Mud, and so their fans <laughs> pelted them with mud during the thing. And the lead guitarist, I think, Les Claypool, uh, said that flinging mud is a sign of small and insignificant genitalia to his fans. Damn! Yeah. Callouts. They weren't happy about it. Uh, it was also, fun fact, the 1994 Woodstock revival, Mudstock, was the big break for the then little-known band Green Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, this is true, as they played a set that devolved into a huge mud fight. Hell yeah. <laughs> At one point... Oh, man. <laughs> Is that part of the Broadway show they did? (laughs) should be an essential scene. So at one point, the bassist was mistaken by security for a fan that had gotten onto the stage. And so the security guard spear-tackled the bassist, (laughs) which caused him to need emergency orthodontia. Oh, man. Do they have a local... Is anyone here an orthodontist? Like someone yells at Woodstock. My mouth is all kinds of fucked up. got a security guard's shoulder inside of it oh that's that's terrible oh by the way this is the woodstock that bob dylan actually performed at (laughs) (laughs) better late than never you know (laughs) (laughs) is there a correlation between everything going crazy and bob dylan actually showing up probably not but man Uh, apparently he played a pretty good set uh one source of mine about this, uh, about this one said it was it was it was just as good as he normally was. There was also a source of mine that said uh, two people also died at this uh, Woodstock event. Um, but exactly I could, two people. Yeah, I couldn't confirm that with other sources, so I, I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> I heard because they one of them sounded like it was diabetes related again, which makes it which makes me think that maybe someone got their wires crossed and was thinking of the original Woodstock. Hmm. So call that a call that a maybe. I'm not sure. Uh anyway, that's that's pretty much all the interesting stuff from Mudstock. I mean there were other there were other incidents. There was a band named Jackal that uh there was a point where uh, a guy where the lead singer like fired a rifle into the air uh and then somehow injured his hand and got real <laughs> bloody and like rubbed the Dumbass. blood on himself. Oh fuck <laughs> Yeah, each successive phrase like just got worse. <laughs> but that's that's not that's not really that important. That's that's kind of the end of. And Mudstock. then he vomited on everyone. I don't know. Yeah. Like the... <laughs> it was so Mudstock was kind of a failure. It was kind of a lame festival with just like a lot of moshing and mud. Um, but it was mostly fine. It wasn't like it wasn't like the original Woodstock, but it also wasn't like what came next. 
I want to know what comes next. <laughs> <laughs> got your got your attention. Yeah. The, the true yeah. failure of Woodstock revivals is still to come. So we need to talk about Woodstock 99. Uh, and before we begin talking about Woodstock 99, I need to put in a content warning because that's the kind of story this is turning out to be. Ruh-roh. Specifically, uh, it gets it gets pretty pretty nasty what happens at Woodstock 99. Uh, and specifically, I'd like to put in a content warning uh, for anyone who doesn't want to hear about sexual assault. Mm. Yeah. I mean, festivals are already like hotbeds of unwanted un- non-consensual groping uh but but woodstock 99 is pretty unpleasant woodstock 99 is where kind of the brand of woodstock really bottoms out curious okay <laughs> i'm not exactly sure what that means but like <laughs> yeah woodstock 99 was sort of the worst music festivals the world has ever seen only one of the original Woodstock founders was involved this time, and it was Michael Lang. You remember him? Was that the guy who was bad at scheduling? That or... was the guy who was bad at scheduling okay. and bad with money. A dreamer, right. they called him. <laughs> Lang had spent the intervening years as a music producer, primarily. He also, I think he promo- he produced a Wes Anderson movie at one point. What? Okay. Sure. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It happened. <laughs> uh, Woodstock 99 was held at the Griffiths Air, Air Force Base the Griffiths Air Force Base in upstate New York, which promoters described as defensible. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even have anything to say about that. It speaks for itself. It's an interesting word choice, you'd say. (laughs) You know, it comes up and it's like, huh, that's a weird word to use there. They were apparently determined to avoid the lawlessness that Mudstock had devolved into. This was to placate the dozens of corporate backers that the festival had, as it was marketed as kind of a, a modern, corporate, maybe even luxury music festival. 500 New York police officers were hired, as well as several volunteers for extra security. A steel fence was erected to keep out the ticketless people. Uh, and they put mini malls, high-priced food stands, and ATMs on the inside. None of this would save it. I was about to say, yeah, nothing's going to go wrong now, right? (laughs) Good. Uh, I think, actually, I'll take a break for an ad here. I might as well before Mm. I get get real into it. We're going to pause here for an ad for another show on the Major Cast Network. Hello, listener. Do you like a scare, a jump, a fright? How about Maine? How do you feel about Maine? If any of those words made your heart skip a beat, then I've got a podcast for you. King Me is a monthly Stephen King podcast where I, Tom Lockney, and a guest watch through a theatrical adaption of a work by everyone's favorite Northeastern author and talk about it with a little help from the source material. So, if you're feeling particularly brave, join me on my descent into terror on the Major Casts Network or wherever you find podcasts. So before we we broke for an ad, I was talking about Woodstock 99. Just once again, I'd like to reiterate that I want to put a content warning. We're going to get into a, a couple fairly brief mentions of sexual assault when we talk about this. So the initial reviews of Woodstock 99 were good. There were acts like James Brown, George Clinton, a few others. They just drew rave reviews. 
But slowly, media attention turned towards the many concurrent disasters that were happening. Such as? (laughs) The first was that very few of the original Woodstock artists returned for this this show, as many of them were turned off by the corporate nature of the event. Thus, most of the performing artists were young and rowdy 90s bands, the kind favored (laughs) by MTV. I need you, I need you to drop some names <laughs> since well, we're talking about the nineties. <laughs> we we will we will in a second. I'm gonna drop yeah. a couple bands names particularly. MTV had first gotten involved with the Woodstock brand uh back in ninety four when they sold uh live pay per view coverage of the event. Uh, and this time they were much more involved. They were they were much more uh kind of involved in like the structure of it, the infrastructure of the whole thing. This is this is partially why this Woodstock came to be known as MTV Stock. Mm. The second disaster was, again, the weather, coupled with the choice of venue. MTV Stock was hot, occasionally reaching above 100 degrees Fahrenheit in upstate New York in July. Uh, at least they're not, like, in a... <laughs> I thought they were going to, like, double down with the rain. It's like, yeah, we're just going to have this entire festival below sea level just like in a bowl <laughs> i'm gonna flood the damn honestly place. <laughs> so i'm gonna get into why it being hot was terrible in just a second but like i've gotta say me personally i would prefer pouring rain to yeah like 100 degrees fahrenheit by a wide margin to be honest i mean do you want a cold or do you want uh, a heat stroke yeah <laughs> i would want a cold here. not heat stroke yeah <laughs> This made the venue specifically a hellish place to be, as it was a former Air Force base. That meant that all the trees had been cleared, and there was tarmac everywhere. <laughs> it's all- not very defensible against heat, I yeah. guess. Also, there were very few buildings. There was no shade, except for, like, three buildings total. And they were all made of metal. <laughs> <Just> say, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> On top of this, festival goers were not allowed to bring in their own food or water bottles as the festival forced them to buy food and beverages at high prices from the festival itself. Lines for these stands and the very few water fountains were always long. There was one man who died of heat-related symptoms. God. Although he didn't die at the festival, they got him to a hospital, then he went into a coma, and then Still, he Still, ca- cause of death is Woodstock. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, he, he was, his, his family was one of the many that filed lawsuits, specifically uh, centering on dehydration against the festival. Jeez, all right. There, the lines were always long, and at one point, angry festival goers broke the water main, feeding the fountains to bring <laughs> water to the people, so that they could bring water to the people waiting. Creating... That's the true spirit of Woodstock, <laughs> if you ask me. The people coming together and just saying, <laughs> fuck all to authority. Oh, we're not, well, this isn't Mudstock? We'll create our own mud pit. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, and now it's time to talk about those angry festival goers, as they were the third and final disaster of the festival. Yeah. Woodstock 94 was rowdy, but Woodstock 99 was violent and misogynistic. Mm-hmm. After a day of the heat, the crowds became more and more incensed. At first, it was just moshing and female attendees flashing their boobs. Then, seemingly whenever a woman was on stage, male attendees shouted for them to show their tits. 
the official website of Woodstock.com started posting pictures of naked attendees. Oh, classy. Usually with captions like, show your tits. God. Yeah. Then the situation devolved and reports of widespread sexual assault began to circulate. There are multiple cases of women crowd surfing at a show and getting pulled down and raped by groups of men. 44 men, I believe, were arrested during the festival and only one was charged with sexual assault. I'm sure MTV was very proud of this event. Oh, we'll get to what MTV did when things, when the shit hit the <laughs> fan. Mm-hmm. This may have been partially due to the fact that several of those volunteer security guards I told you about apparently walked off the job and just kind of went to the festival for free. Yeah, got a free. Yeah, got a free show. That's, yeah, that's there cool, was apparently. I, I read this in a Rolling. They were volunteers, right? They weren't paid. Kind of. They were just suddenly gone. They were volunteers, I believe. Sure. They just fucking left. <laughs> it was wow. like fuck this. It's too Dear hot. Duty. But the violence was only escalating. During the Red Hot Chili Peppers set, an audio tower got caught fire, and the lead singer commented on it while playing a cover. Of Hendrix's Fire. Jimi Hendrix had a song called Perfect. Fire. Yeah. He performed at the original Woodstock. They meant it as a nice tribute. Uh, but it gave the, the festival goers an idea. Uh, arson, I assume. Oh, also, with to not to, I don't want to dwell on the sexual assault any more than I have to, but apparently the crowd surfing rapes occurred specifically during the uh, sets of Limp Biscuit. And corn. God. I know. I know. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> there was apparently a point where the lead singer of Limp Biscuit like, pleaded with the crowd not to hurt anybody. Wow. Yeah, Heroes. no, it's a bad time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the violence was only escalating, and then the Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> played fire. Uh, and unbeknownst to the Red Hot Chili Peppers... I think. They may have known. I don't think they did, though. There was a pacifist activist group called PAX at the festival, and you wouldn't think that they would contribute to this, but see, what they did was they handed out candles with the intent of holding a candlelight vigil for victims of gun violence. Also familiar. Yeah, I know. It's, we're, we're real topical with this one. Uh, festival goers took these candles and started setting bonfires in the middle of the grounds, starting by blowing up somebody's Mercedes. What do you think's going to happen? That's <laughs> <laughs> why we use cell phone flashlights now. Yeah, it seems like it seems like for these two festivals specifically, everyone was kind of coming for like the hippie vibes, like peace and love, and what they got was not that. <laughs> the whatever the opposite of those are. Yeah, well, they got limp biscuit and corn vibes. <laughs> The opposite of peace and love. Yeah. <laughs> These fires quickly got out of control. The festival turned into a riot with people turning over the ATMs that were there. They started burning the vendor booths and several trailers. And then they started upending the overflowing porta potties. <laughs> the porta potties had apparently, they had been too few to start with. Um, and they very quickly started overflowing. <laughs> Uh, and so now they were weaponized. Uh, this is, this is when all the sensible people started to flee. 
Um, and one one positive thing I can say about this riot is that it apparently did not ever <laughs> did not <laughs> it didn't ever spread to the tents like where people were like living sure. for that part. It stayed it was on contained. the ground. The chaos was. I think I think confined. pretty specifically most of the rioters were they were definitely directing their their anger at the festival itself, at the corporate <laughs> nature of it, uh-huh. and especially at the overpriced food and water. Sure. They were really not happy about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at this point, with shit hitting the fan, what did MTV do? Can you guess? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, was any of this actually, like, broadcast? Or uh, like, I did they have, like, so. a dude, like, on the scene with a microphone and a camera? Um. Well, here's the thing. No, because what they did was they pulled their camera crew out of there and ran. <laughs> Those goddamn cowards. <laughs> the, the, I think the director of the program, there's like some quote of him on the Wikipedia page that was like, there's there was like a tangible energy of anger and hatred or something right. like that. Yeah. No. I, I, so they is... just, honestly, probably smart to just <laughs> get out of there. Yeah. No, that's, that's reasonable. You know, save your skin. So MTV even pulls out its camera crew and then uh, like, at least an hour or two after the riot had like gotten into full swing, finally the New York State troopers arrived and mm. drove everyone out of the festival grounds. Mm. Thus came to an end MTV stock. <laughs> One of the worst music festivals of all time. Fire Festival probably beats it, but... Not by much. I mean, I don't know if there is actual music at the Fire Festival, so... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, yeah, that was the last uh, revival for a long time. People weren't that interested in having another Woodstock, weirdly, after that one. I don't know. Wikipedia's telling me otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) There would be no Woodstock revival in 2009, but there were plans for a 50th anniversary revival this very year, led by none other than Michael Lang. (laughs) (laughs) back for another one yep (laughs) friends of lang tried to talk him out of it (laughs) there was a guy one of the guys who had um organized woodstock 99 um who apparently there's a story that they were like high-fiving right before the riots broke out (laughs) because they were like this is going great pow yeah and they they then they turned around and then (laughs) and then a mercedes blew up (laughs) yeah uh, so there, the his name is John Schur, and he was not involved in Woodstock '50, which is what this one was going to be called. And he literally went like, "Listen, Michael, you have done four Woodstocks, and you haven't made a dime off any of them. <laughs> like, why do you want to do this?" Mm-hmm. Nobody succeeded in talking him out of it. The idea was to make the revival a multi generational spectacle with new acts alongside originals. Lang pitched agents on the idea of a target audience of 150,000 people on an old racetrack in New York State, and while they were skeptical, they agreed to help him on the condition that they that he pay them up front. Hmm. He only started the ball rolling a year before their proposed date of the show, <laughs> and so while they reached out to a lot of high-profile artists, it took a while before anyone accepted, because most of them weren't interested. Finally, what helped them was a Japanese advertising firm got involved uh, with the corporate backing this time. 
and uh, the the name of the firm is is Dentsu, um, and with their help, big names finally started to sign. Jay Z, Santana, The Killers, Imagine Dragons, and many others booked a spot. Wow, this sounds great. I I, I want a good Woodstock fifty. Oh man, get excited! <laughs> <laughs> gonna be gonna be great. Thirty two million dollars was paid out in these fees in advance. The festival was announced in January, half a year before the August start date. Tickets would not go on sale until April, and multiple delays on this front caused organizers to shrink their target audience size to just 100,000 people. Then, the date for the ticket sales came, and no tickets went up for sale. (laughs) Uh, This was due in part to the fact that the festival did not have the proper the proper permits to put on a show in upstate New York, they had some time to to, to do all this. It's strange <laughs> that this that that didn't work out there. <laughs> I feel like uh, that should be your first order of yeah. business, not like one that you're still working out. Location, location, location. So when that happened, the financial backers Dentsu pulled out and declared that the show was dead. Lang tried to continue, but he also <laughs> lost the venue in June. <laughs> oh, you gotta admire that 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 uh that attitude. Just oh, to... oh, he didn't give up. Lang took the financial backers to court, and that's where uh, journalists got their hands on paperwork that like showed the inner workings of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, the paperwork revealed that the organizers were kind of never ready to put on a show. After they lost the first venue, they tried to switch to the town of Vernon, which flatly refused them any of the necessary permits. Uh, It specifically pointed to the, quote, worthless security plans as its reason (laughs) to reject the proposals. A lot of the towns were like, yeah, you can build it if you, like, build entirely new roads for us and, like, have an incredible security force. Feels like... These are reasonable considering just how many towns and cities have been like totally let's say decimated. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think at this point upstate New York was pretty tired of being the site of festivals like these. Yeah, yeah. No, he has to like buy a private island at this point. Yeah. It was well, he didn't stop there when New York shut him out. But he did start to distance himself from the venture, saying that he was really just an employee of uh, Susan Cronin and Gregory Peck, who were hotel owners who were supporting him financially. Uh, He also pointed most of the blame at Dentsu, the Japanese backers. Uh, And looking through the paperwork, I was reading a a New York Times article about it, and it specifically talked about, like, there's no real clear, like, leadership structure here. (laughs) The whole management thing is opaque, is the word that they used. Hmm. It's a flat hierarchy. Uh, and so Lang made one last-ditch attempt to switch to a venue in Maryland at the Meriwether Post Pavilion, but that fell through and he finally gave up. Woodstock's 50th anniversary is coming up this very month, and there will be no major revival. And maybe that's a good thing. And that's the <laughs> that's the end of my story about the Woodstock revival. I'm shocked that I'd, I've never heard of like any of this happening Yeah, like, when I Woodstock 50. When I so I, I I thought about this for a story when I first heard about like Woodstock fifty getting cancelled and everyone talking mm-hmm. about how it was like clearly a shit show with people who didn't know how to put on a festival. Right. 
And that's when, and when I was like reading up on it, that's when I found out about Woodstock 94 and 99. And that's when I was like, okay, I've got to do this as a, as a story. That's what, that's what made me go. Yep. This is it. Some occurring themes here. It seems. Yeah. It seems like it. It's just, seems like putting on a festival is hard and, uh, making sure that people aren't horrible people is even harder. Have you ever been to a music festival? Um, sort of. <laughs> I've never, I've never been to like a popular music festival. I've been to a folk mm. music festival in England. Okay. Close yeah, enough. I know, right? <laughs> I saw a drinking there that would boggle your mind. Man, I don't even know what that would entail. <laughs> Just like methods of drinking or the, the amount of drinking? The amount of vodka <laughs> that I saw one man consume there. Good uh... God. Yeah, I I couldn't ever. I I just it's not really my scene, and even just like regular concerts that I've gone to, I'm like, okay, this energy is too much for me. So uh, a whole festival, I feel. Well, and it's not I, just a festival either. It's a festival with hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, yeah. Like it's and, it's it's the fucking Lollapalooza, Coachella kind of shit. So I mean, who do you? Like, who do you blame? Like, do you blame the attendees for just going nuts? Or do you blame the organizers for for just kind of dropping the ball on several things? Or is it just kind of like a like just a mix of both that just yeah, kind of led I think to this? Yeah, I think it's kind of a clusterfuck. Like, my, the <laughs> point of this, the point of this, of this podcast was always, like, incompetence on kind of a grand scale. Rather mm-hmm. than just, like, one guy fucking up once. Yeah. Uh, and... I think I think this one is just kind of Woodstock '99 in particular was kind of this perfect nexus of a lot of bad shit, right? So yeah, it's just it's just like a lot of things that shouldn't be a thing all in one place. I feel <laughs> like just like the the hubris of the organizers, the uh, the choice of talent, the awful attendees, and. Mm-hmm. negligence of you know some other people in between so it's just like there, there are no winners here no winners mm. all right so at the end of at the end of every big story about incompetence i do a smaller story that involves competence in an absurd way uh and this time as as a response to the the fact that i had to talk about uh rape during this story about you know a funny music festival uh, we're gonna we're gonna tell I'm gonna tell you the story of Saverland versus Newton. Okay. Oh, what you never heard of it? Weird. Nope. <laughs> Saverland versus Newton is a British court case in from 1837, in which a British man named Thomas Saverland brought an action against Miss Caroline Newton, who had bitten the left half of his nose off after he attempted to steal a kiss at a party. All power to you. The judge ended up ruling against him. I'm going to read from a uh, contemporary newspaper account that's on the Wikipedia page for the court case. Uh, the, the, it's from Bell's New Weekly Messenger from, 18, from April 30th, 1837. Okay. The headline is A Dearly Bought Kiss. Caroline Newton was indicted for assaulting Thomas Saverland and biting off his nose. The complainant, whose face bore incontestable evidence of the severe injury inflicted, (laughs) the fleshy part of the left nostril being completely gone, 
stated that on the day after Christmas Day, he was in a tap room where were Defendant and her sister. The sister laughingly observed that she had left her young man down at Birmingham and had promised him no man should kiss her while absent. Complainant regarded this observation as a challenge, especially it being a holiday time, and caught, and caught hold of her and kissed her. She took it in good part as joke, but defendant became angry and desired she might have as little of that kind of fun as he pleased. God, 1837, man. <laughs> Writing. Yeah, we were born the wrong time. We're yeah. No, no, Complainant no, no, no. told her if she was angry, he would kiss her also and tried to do it. A scuffle ensued, <laughs> and they both fell to the ground. After they got up, complainant went and stood by the fire, and the defendant followed and struck at him. <laughs> he again closed with her and tried to kiss her. And in the scuffle, he was heard to cry out, She has got my nose in her <laughs> mouth. <laughs> when they parted, he was bleeding profusely from the nose, and a portion of it, which defendant had bitten off, she was seen to spit out of her mouth upon the ground. The defendant, a fat middle-aged woman, treated the matter with great levity and said he had no business to kiss her sister or attempt to kiss her in a public house. They were not such kind of people. If she wanted to be kissed, she had a husband to kiss her, and he was a much handsomer man than defendant ah. ever was, even before he lost his nose. <laughs> the chairman told the, the jury that it mattered little which way their verdict went. If they found her guilty, the court would not fine her more than one, one cent. Or one shilling. Sorry, one one shilling. As the prosecutor had brought the punishment on himself, the jury, without hesitation, acquitted her. The chairman told the prosecutor he was sorry for the loss of his nose, but if he would play with cats, he must expect to get scratched. Turning to the jury, the chairman afterwards said, Gentlemen, my opinion is that if a man attempts to kiss a woman against her will, she has a right to bite his nose off if she has a fancy for so doing. And eat it, too. Wait, that's... Okay. Added a learned gentleman at the the bar. (laughs) Okay. The case caused much laughter to all except the poor complainant. (laughs) That's Saverlin versus Newton, and apparently it set a legal precedence against harassers. Cool. Well, uh, we have to get the word out. Um, Go for the nose. Go for the nose. It's legal in England. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's... I can see why, like, like they, they just visually, like, the nose is, like, a very, it's, like, one of the first things you notice about something. Listen, so. sometimes it's just when I'm talking to people, their nose ends up in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. So that happens all, it's really easy, to, you Yeah, know. yeah, well, I'm in mid-bite, and then take a little chomp there. <laughs> yeah, listen, my teeth are very sharp, and yeah. if, if your nose ends up in my mouth, yeah. it's, a, it's a goner. Well, I'm glad that was a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's the... If that case had ended with, like, the the woman being prosecuted, it would not have ended up on my podcast. Right, yeah. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed your time, Chris. I have. No, I, I feel enlightened and uh, <laughs> slightly disappointed that Woodstock 50 didn't actually happen. Because I know! Because I would like to have seen, like, not that it would have been, like, an amazing thing, but just to see if that could have like what is like the 2019 version of this going wrong yeah it's 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 a better story if it explodes like at the place like in woodstock 99 but yeah yeah still still a huge failure on the part of the organizers so chris it's time for you to uh say your plugs sure what you do Um, on the internet 
You kind of you kind of did it for me, like uh, at the beginning, but no, I'm at, at the beginning and the end. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm at Compendorizer on Twitter. I'm at the real Chris Compendio on Instagram. <laughs> and in case I become famous one day, and you know, a lot of uh, impersonators are going to be out there. Yep. And check out AP Marvel. We're, we are on every podcast platform. We have a. Uh, we got some website changes going on, so I'm going to keep tight on that. And then uh, I'm also writing for Dual Shockers, Reflexist. Uh, I was at E3, as I mentioned, so a lot of like my coverage is out there. A lot of previews and interviews are out there. And other than that, I'm just doing, you know, just check me out on Twitter. Um, trying to be all snarky and whatnot, so. Talking about Marvel, talking about yeah, video I can, games. I can vouch for... Yeah, I can vouch for April Marvel because I've been on it, and that's how you know yes, a podcast have. is good. Thank you very much. We are, um, as of this recording, I think we are on episode sixty-two. We've been around for a while. That's so. more than that's more than this podcast has done. Well, somehow we've done this weekly, and I don't know how the hell we've managed. Yeah, to do that's that, so. uh, that's a thing that um, we gave up on for the other <laughs> podcast I do for MajorCast Network. Yeah, I, I I I wanted to give up many times doing weekly, but like we have enough people working, yeah. like doing the editing that like you know what this is possible. Let's just let's well, just keep going. We were doing Whatever. we were doing we are experts weekly until specifically Liam got too busy to be regularly editing stuff. Yeah. Because um, uh, Liam has become kind of the de facto podcast producer over at the Hard Times. Oh, damn. damn. Yeah. He's 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 kind of behind a lot of their kind of upcoming podcast stuff. He's doing That's some cool gig. stuff with them. Yeah. All right. Thanks for being on. Say goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun. Stay nasty and stay major.